Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I am the host, John Morehead, and I'm privileged one more time and certainly not the last time they have uh, as a guest, Charles Randall, Paul Randy has been a friend uh, and something of a mentor and colleague and partner on this strange journey of religious diplomacy for many years. Randy is the uh, founder and president of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, and uh, I'm privileged to uh, be the director of the evangelical chapter. Randy, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be here, John. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Randy, you and I have had conversations uh, on this podcast, as well as off, about all kinds of things related to religious diplomacy, but it dawned on me recently, you and I have never had a conversation, certainly not a a recorded podcast conversation, on your own faith tradition, that of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And just for the record, I recognize that the church is using that phrase, they're moving away from Mormon, I may slip into Mormon terminology just as a time saver and because I'm so familiar with it. But of of course, for anyone watching and listening, I mean, no disrespect by the use of that terminology. And and I'm aware of the the church's preference at this time. So with that out of the way, before we explore some facets and allow viewers and listeners (laughs) to hear from a Latter-day Saint about their own religious tradition, uh, I like to start in true FRD fashion. Can you share briefly how you came to embrace your faith? Yes, I I will say that um, I was raised in northern New Jersey. My parents were both um, part of the Mormon diaspora when Mormonism was Mormonism. Uh, And uh, I came to, I think, question um, my religion enough to understand it was different than other people's religions when I was probably in junior high school. And in the LDS tradition, uh, we were early on told to replicate Joseph Smith's experience when he read in the scripture back in the uh, early 1800s that if you were confused or had a question, follow the admonition of James and ask God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, which means uh, in modern English, he comes through and will not, com- will not criticize you for having questions. Um, and uh, so as a young Latter-day Saint, you're supposed to kind of go to your own sacred moment and ask God if this is the true religion, right? That the one you hold is, is the right church. And uh, I had an experiment with the Book of Mormon, um, reading that when I was probably about 14 years old. And I remember getting on my knees by my bed after I finished it and prayed earnestly to get a confirmation. This book was real scripture and uh, I was on the right path and nothing happened, right? 
Um, some two years later, I was reading in the book of Hebrews, which ends up being one of my favorite books, uh, one Sunday afternoon. And I won't go into detail other than to saying I had a spiritual experience in which I was convicted at that moment. This will sound really evangelical to you, that Jesus was real, that uh, that humanity needed help and I needed help. And that uh, my parents had taught me the truth about Christ and about God and that I was on the right path. And so uh, within a couple of years, I had another experience with the Book of Mormon that was much more affirmative. And uh, it's interesting, though, that I came to the Book of Mormon via the New Testament. And, and that all sounds very, uh, um, very much like a, a heady kid who was into Scripture. I was just a normal kid. I loved all sorts of things. And the Scripture was a sideline for me. I was not a, you know, it was something I was supposed to do. But if I look at my life, um, it was more moments that I had. I remember when I was in what the LDS people call sacrament meeting, which is every week you, you meet as a ward and you take the emblems, the, the we use bread and water, not bread and wine, or not a host. But uh, I was in a sacrament meeting and I remember having taken the sacrament uh, as a young priest. We actually were the ones who bless it. Mormons ordain priests at age 16. And so I actually was blessing the sacrament and, and then younger people pass it out to the members of the church. And I had a moment there where, again, I was self-aware of what I was doing. I was using this, this ritual form of praying to God over these, these, uh, you know, the bread and water, what was going on here, you know, and all of a sudden something came to me that was, that was just not a normal feeling or thought uh, that, that this was something very important and very sacred, I guess is the word. And, uh, and in that, that meeting, I remember my father getting up and speaking, who he was a, a business executive at a Fortune 100 company, and he was assigned a talk. Um, and Latter-day Saints don't have a, a paid clergy um, each ward or congregation of about anywhere from 150 to 450 people meet every week. And the bishop of the ward is a just a normal person who's asked to serve for five years and then released from that, that effort. So my father was just a normal member of the ward who'd been asked to speak. And I'll never forget, as I looked up at him from where I was sitting on the side where we have this, what we call the sacrament table, or the table where the bless, you bless, bless the bread and water. I remember looking upside and having, as he said, in his, he said, I know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And bam, it hit me. You know, that's true. That's what I want my life to be based on, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, so I, I'm a sinner like, like a bad sinner. I, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not this super righteous person, but I am someone who is convinced from an early age, my teenage years, 
that Christianity, as we, we like to call it, has this gospel of trust in God, trust in Christ, trust in his love, and calling us to change, to repent, right? To always change. Um, and uh, then to serve others and to be part of the leaven of the loaf. I think that's essentially Christianity is the, the gospel of love, tough love at times. But um, I, it started when I was very young there. And um, though I've had, in my 40s, I had an experience where I really doubted God. I went back to graduate school in midlife and I was at the University of Chicago and studying other religions and other philosophies. And I remember having a, a, a week of very strong, uh, I have to say, doubt um, of the existence of God. And I was reading in my coursework at the time, Dostoevsky, the Brothers Karamazov. And um, during that very week, we were reading passages in the Brothers Karamazov. And uh, I started to realize Dostoevsky was onto something here that I that I was reading scripture as much as any New Testament when I was reading the brother Karamazov. And I started to read in more about him and what he went through in his life. And I had a, a midlife reconversion in some depth to Christ through Saint Fyodor Dostoevsky, who wrote uh, famously to one of his friends, if in the end, he said, he says, I'm a child of the 19th century, I doubt everything. But he said, in the end, if it turns out that Christ is not true, or is not, he says, if it turns out if Christ is not with the truth, I will go with Christ and not with the truth. There is nothing that inspires me more than the story of Jesus Christ and, and to have trust in that, that God, that's a God I can trust. And so I found myself going back to a belief in God through the idea that there was a human being who was Jesus Christ who pointed to God, right? Who had become, I know many people believe he's the son of God as I do too, but that's a, that's a different, uh, that's a, we all, we'd all have to talk about what that means, but Again, I had this deep conversion to um, to Christ, uh, and I think in Mormon theology, I know we're going to be talking about practical uh, Latter-day Saint life in this discussion, but in Mormon theology, I do think there is this profound idea that God was once not as not as great as God is now, and that um, that the basis of our belief in God is a trust in a being who loves outrageously, who just, you know, who cares if God might someday find something he doesn't know. If you're on God's team, the, the lover, the Christ, the lover, would you go to someone who, who loves less? <laughs> you know, would you worship someone who knows more but loves less? <laughs> you see what I'm getting at? There's this deep idea, I think, in Latter-day Saint thought that God does not see himself as this, this sovereign uh, who, who needs people to worship him, to give him more glory. In Latter-day Saint thought, there's this 
idea that God wants, literally desires peers. And that sounds outrageous to so many people, but it's a very social religion all the way up and all the way down. Um, and when I'm in conversations with my Islamic friends and they say, well, the one thing we have in, in the Quran is God has no partners. God, you know, I look at him and go, oh boy, this is going to be an interesting conversation <laughs> because there could be no more heretical view, I think, of uh, what God is on one level than the LDS view. I might add, though, since we're online, I love to say God is at least a glorified human. God is at least a super powerful um, person embodied. I will not say what God is in more, because I have no idea. God, God is probably much, much more than that. And so maybe it'll be closer to my Islamic uh, friend's view that when I get there someday and see God, I go, whoa, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, at least you were this, but I can see you're much more than that. So I'll just leave that. Uh, that was a long rambling response to how I came to my religious convictions. I, I will get in now to talk to you more, I think, candidly and and particularly about a couple of things. I remember when I was, and these will talk about what Latter-day Saints do. Um, I remember uh, I was on a welfare farm. Latter-day Saints have uh, a welfare system where they own property and they cultivate uh, food all over the world. And then they put the food in what they call the storehouse to help people who need food who can't afford it. And that goes mainly to the Latter-day Saint community, but also we spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, providing food for and other goods to people outside our faith. Um, but as a young man, um, I, I remember being on a on a welfare farm in northern New Jersey, and it was a it was a dairy farm. And uh, I remember my father was a big shot. You know, he was a he was the chairman of the board of a major company, and we were in a barnyard, and the guy who was in charge of the farm was picking people to for different tasks. And um, so you're gonna go and hammer up this thing. You're gonna go and do this with the animals and you do this. And my, I noted that my father was the last guy to be picked. And what was he supposed to do? You're gonna clean the barnyard. And my father, yes, sir. And I went with him. That was a moving moment for me to be part of a community that didn't look at your status um, um, except as you could serve and uh, serve the best you can wherever you were. So I think that's part of the LDS idea is there is a community of service that when it's working well, it's really working well. I still go out and weed on the welfare farm here in Salt Lake City. Um, I can do other things that I'm trained to do, but I like to get out there and get my hands in the dirt with other people who are, I don't know what their what their life is like, you know, what they're doing, but they're weeding with me. And so there is that, that idea. I, in the old days, before the church got really big, we'd build our own our own chapels. I remember back in New Jersey where I was raised, most of the 
I won't go into the details, but the idea of creating a community where you build your own chapel, right? Um, and people don't don't know how to hammer nails or are out there trying to do it with people who do. It was it was quite a learning experience. I remember also getting on the stage and being in plays. I, I need to tell your hearers that uh, I was uh, I I work on in interreligious diplomacy, and a few years ago I was in New York dealing with a Shiite friend who uh, we were raising, uh, having some dialogues. And he said he wanted to talk to me in his office. Uh, and I said, okay. And he, he said, can we have a personal conversation? And I said, yeah. And he said, I've heard the Latter-day Saints, he would have said that in those days, Mormons. I've heard that the Mormons um, are able to somehow get their kids into graduate school without losing their faith. And uh, I have a theory of how they do it. And I looked at him and said, okay, what, what's your theory? He went, basketball courts. And I looked at him and, and I, re I realized what he'd done is he did observed LDS or Latter-day Saint chapels that have a, this, the worship sanctuary. And then they have sliding doors usually between the worship sanctuary and what they call the cultural hall which is a large basketball court and a stage for productions. This comes from the early church where Joseph Smith and Brigham Young both had this idea of a whole life, a religion that, that touched every element of life. And it included the aesthetic life. So you put on plays, you had dances, right? This is where they were different than other, um, I'm not gonna call them puritanical, but more conservative, let's just say, uh, religions in the 1800s, you had dances, and then you had sporting events. Joseph Smith loved to wrestle. So the, 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 the basketball court for this Islamic friend of mine was a symbol of keeping the kids at church, so to speak, in the mosque, doing all sorts of things so that they could see that their spiritual lives and their their fun lives, their other lives, were all part of the wholeness of God's desire for their, for their human existence. And um, I think the Latter-day Saints in recent uh, decades have lost, for various reasons, uh, they don't play as much basketball. <laughs> they don't put on plays as much as they used to. I think what they've done is they've assimilated into the secular community where they're playing soccer with other kids and they're doing all sorts of things and and they've got their you know putting on plays is so tame compared to watching what's ever on their screens right um but i wanted to bring that out as part of what the the latter-day saint culture has been and why it's a little different than others i i as i get out in other communities i know they all do these things too i'm not saying it i'm just saying they don't spend millions of dollars building basketball courts and stages in their in their chapels. That's kind of the the the, the Latter Day Saints tend to institutionalize things uh, a little differently. Um, I I'm going to stop there and just say um, Latter Day Saints also believe in intermarriage, meaning intra marriage, having. Uh, sustaining families that are LDS. And so part of their program uh, is wisely to say, we dance, which means you can dance with other LDS kids 
and therefore you might fall in love with them and therefore you might you know have families that remain in the faith and so there's a method to our madness uh, we have brigham young university we spent we subsidized that university it's one of the largest um, church-run universities in the world and um and and there are now islands of it all over the world that not just in provo utah but again the Latter-day Saints have this idea from the very end, from the very beginning, you should fall in love. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with falling in love. And, and, and sex is actually something that is a God-given gift, right? And so the, the idea there, again, is that's part of your wholeness of life, especially if you're dating another Latter-day Saint. And, uh, and, and it could come to uh, an LDS marriage, which... Uh, is a way of, uh, I think, growing a community if you can continue to have second, third, fourth, fifth generation uh, members of your church. I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm hoping. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm let me interject in. another question to uh, to give you some more to, to go on here. One of the, of the things I think it's a natural human tendency is we tend to look at and under, try to understand other people's religions by way of what's important in our religious tradition. I understand that, but if you do that, oftentimes it ends up, you end up having a distortion of how the other individual and other group is actually living their own and understanding their own religious tradition. So for evangelicals, we're all about belief. And so when we get into conversations with Latter-day Saints, it tends to be, let's talk about your belief, your doctrine in, in contrast to mine, and then we go down, you know, what's orthodox and what's not. And certainly the religion of the Latter-day Saints has doctrine and belief, but as I see it and understand it as an outsider and, and help us to understand, it's not just about belief. There are other important things, there ritual, uh, things like sacrament and, and temple ordinances and these kinds of things, and ethics, choosing the right there are other facets that are perhaps more uh, important to the daily lived religious experience of Latter-day Saints. And that, that those rituals and that ethics is then all lived out within a sacred narrative framework. Am I on the right track? Help us understand the lived religion of Latter-day Saints. I think you're on the right track. I met my favorite American philosopher is William James. He was also a philosopher of religion and his, his great work the varieties of religious experience has always been criticized because it talked about ideas and theories of religion of different religions and it talked about individuals uh, who were remarkable examples of these different religions but it's been criticized because it didn't talk about the social aspect of these religions how they're actually lived right um, how the normal person in this particular, whatever the religion he was studying would be. So he went to the iconic, you know, Joseph Smith, Jesus, Mohammed, instead of, you know, Joe Smith and, and, uh, and, and you or me. And so I think your question is really great because it, it bores down on that level of the normal life uh, of a Latter-day Saint. And I think, um, I think, to distinguish it from what I've observed in other religions, um, there is a kind of centralized, Latter-day Saints call it correlated view of how you should be a Mormon, how you should live your life. And I can share a couple of things with you there. Um, it's common knowledge when you join the church 
for example, that you pay 10% of your income every month to the church. You're tithe. You tithe. That's real. I mean, it's out of your pocket and uh, you do it. It's common knowledge among Latter-day Saints that every first Sunday of the month is what they call fast Sunday, where you don't eat two meals. The whole family doesn't eat two meals. And the money that they would have spent on those two meals, they give as a fast offering that goes into the ward or the, the congregation and then is correlated with the other congregations in what they call the stake or the diocese. And if they haven't used the money to help the poor in that diocese, it goes upstairs to Salt Lake City and goes out to some uh, third world country where they can use the money. So um, there is a way of spiritually fasting, giving the dough to someone who could use it. And that's, and, and, when, and, you're, and when you're tithing, you're thinking, oh, I could use this money on something else, but uh, I'm going to give it to the church. There's that, there's that constant, frequent, and by that stuff, by the way, that's done privately. You don't, we don't put the dough in a in a in a basket. You do every no one knows who's paying tithing in our church, right? You you, you or how much. Um, but I bring those out as very practical things. The other thing that's I think that's very practical that Latter-day Saints do that others don't necessarily do is without a paid clergy, everyone has a calling or a job in the church. So it's practical knowledge that if you join the church, they're going to ask you very soon to be a Sunday school teacher or a, 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 a what they call primary or little kids class teacher, or to um, help keep the ward building or the clean or to be a visiting minister to people. There are all sorts of jobs that you you will be assigned, right? And it'll take a few hours a week of your time to do that. Um, the other thing is the Latter-day Saints have, a, have meetings every week in which at least four different members of the congregation are asked to speak, right? We don't have a, we don't have a, a, a homily by a minister we have the, the sacrament, then we have brothers and sisters. Welcome to the meeting. Today we have Brother Jones, Sister Smith, and they're, and they're all going to give their five or 10 minute talks. And they can talk on usually on any subjects, uh, but they're, they're religiously oriented. You know, they're asked to talk on faith. They're asked to talk on uh, hope. They're asked to talk on service, whatever. Um, but you get used to going to church and seeing the other members of the ward. A few years ago, I was asked, what is the icon of Mormonism? You guys don't use crosses, right? We go into your buildings and there's nothing there. It's just a building. And I say, I thought to myself and I said, hmm, what's the icon? The icon is the individual member giving a talk because that's the only thing you see. We've got a pulpit and an individual member, a new one every, every week is up there talking about something they've been assigned to talk about. So they have to read scripture or they, most of them give personal stories, right? That's, that's, that's the kind of thing that goes on in an LDS worship service. And so I think that's different. Um, I remember for giving my first two minute talk when I was probably 10 years old and memorizing every, every word of it, you know, um, that was scary, but it, taught me the gift for gab. That's probably why I'm here talking to you is I was able to early on learn how to talk in front of people. So most Latter-day Saints have that experience. 
Um, I, I want to add on Fast Sunday, there's also, also something that maybe our Quaker friends share this, but uh, on Fast Sunday, when you come to church, it's not a normal meeting. On the first Sunday of the month, no one is assigned to talk. So we sit like Quakers silently until someone is moved by the Spirit to get up and say something. And uh, it's quite an experience. I remember as a young man noting people that would get up and, and just talk about something that had happened to them that week that they found faith-promoting or, or, or difficult, and they wanted to share it with the congregation. So again, there's that, it's almost therapy. If you want to look from Mars at it, the, ch the church has a therapeutic approach, right, to creating a community that can be honest with each other. And when it works, it's magnificent. When it, when it, when it doesn't, it becomes kind of a rote everybody's got to say the same thing, right? And you sit in the audience and you go, hmm, I wish that person would really just open up, you know, <laughs> and because we're all just affirming the same thing. And though it's good to do that, you want to affirm a community. I think it's wonderful that it's an open mic, right? And when it works, it's really quite wonderful. So those are some rituals. Uh, I could talk to you about the temple, which is a, a remarkably different place in 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 the ritual life of a Latter Day Saint. You want me to go there now? Yeah, and uh, I, I understand that uh, the way it's viewed is there are sacred things, and I'm not asking you to violate any of that. But just if you could speak to what uh, one, one uh, scholar, Douglas Davies, in his various books on Mormonism, has even talked about there being two different kinds of Mormonism that what goes on in the ward and then a very different kind of thing that goes on in the temple. Um, so you've talked about ward life. Uh, how does what goes on in, in temple life, how does that differ and how do the two connect? Um, great question. And Dave does, he does a very fine job, I think of, uh, of talking about that. I've often thought that Latter-day Saints, if you go back to Nietzsche and, and the Greeks, uh, there, there's a, there's this idea of of a Dionysian uh, view of reality, which is full of passion and um, almost it gets at the edge, right, of, of 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 being hedonistic, right, of just enjoying life so much and, and the pleasures of the world, and versus the Apollonian life, which is very focused on excellence and on um, control and discipline, right. And I've said to myself several times that the Latter-day Saints with their idea of this fecundity of gods, plural gods, right? And, and the universe that's always expanding and gods progressing um, and enjoying their bodies for Pete's sakes, right? Uh, we believe God's married for Pete's sakes, right? I mean, you, you, all this stuff is there. That's a very Dionysian theology, right? <laughs> But as to our normal lives, we're very Apollonian. When you go into the, the LDS temple, it's very staid. You know, we all wear white robes. Everyone whispers. Um, very little conversation at all. It's all a ritual learning experience. And uh, um, uh, very there, there's, though, though there was a point in time in, in early Mormonism where they had the, the temples were three or four stories high, and they would have actual parties and dances on the top floor of the temple. Modern Latter-day Saints looked at that and go, what? 
you know, dances in the temple because when you go into the temple now, it's a very um, structured format. Format, and I'll I'll give you a couple of uh, uh, you can talk a lot about what goes on in the temple without uh, uh, breaching any kind of sacred covenants. Um, one of our uh, prophets, David McKay, who, uh, who um, lived in the 50s and 60s, uh, described the temple ritual, uh, what the what the Latter-day Saints call the temple endowment experience, where you're given a gift of, of knowledge um, from God. Uh, that experience, he said, is a step-by-step -step ascent into the eternal presence. So you come into the temple and in the basement of the temple is a baptismal font. And the, as most Christians would understand, baptism is the beginning, right? You, you're born again, right? You're, you're down into the water. And uh, whether you believe it is a, as a ritual of uh, washing and uh, you're cleansed, or whether you believe it's a resurrection ritual, it's a beginning, right? You come out of the water. And Latter-day Saints start there in their temple experience and I'll talk about vicarious work for the dead in a minute, but I want you to see the ritual first. Baptism, then, very important, you go into a room where you are ritually washed and anointed. So they, they, you're touched on various points of your body very modestly um, with water to be ritually washed and then with oil. You, you know, what the word Christ means, right? It means Messiah. And you know what Messiah means, right? Of course, yeah, the anointed one. The anointed one, right? And so we, be, we come out of the waters of baptism, and then we're washed and anointed ritually to become, to become kings and queens, if you will, divine beings in heaven, right? We have become anointed ones like Christ. So when the scripture says, you know, we don't know who we are now, but someday we'll see God, Christ face to face, we'll be like him. The Latter-day Saints take that uh, as, a, as a very realistic future. Not that, I'll just say that, the, the big idea for every Latter-day Saint is every human being is already a divine person who's had a veil put up over his or her mind when they were born into this world. But the veil will eventually be lifted and they will have a memory of their eternal life before they came to this world. And they're on an ascent, right? They are on a, an, a, an everlasting ascent to become more and more to have more joy through more love and capacities. And they join God in that ascent. God is out ahead. Jesus is out ahead. But they're on this, uh, you, you might say, on one level, uh, where we really differ from most of our Christian friends is our Christian friends see, see God as truly someone beyond the human that can save the human, whereas Latter-day Saints see, see God as a leader and a leader who's gone through all this that that we can we can we we can approach that's why i love the hebrews so much we can come boldly to the throne of grace we we can come boldly there we're we're part of the same family 
we can see, see what he's done and what they've done, and we can make that approach ourselves. So in the temple, we are actually anointed to become divine beings better than we are now, right? And then we go through, after that, you go through a learning experience where in the first room in the temple is called the creation room, where you hear the story of the ritual story of Adam and Eve, how they were uh, created and, and the fall and the purpose of life and how the, the, uh, the, the atonement of Christ was actually taught to Adam and Eve. Okay. So Mormon Christians believe Adam and Eve were Christians. <laughs> that they were actually taught the true gospel of Christ early on and that it, it was dispersed and lost, okay? There was an apostasy time and time again that this true gospel was lost and had to be restored in dispensations of time up until the what we call this last dispensation where Joseph Smith received the, uh, the, the true goods, even though our brothers and sisters who were Christian had contained, continued in Christianity. They didn't have the fullness, we call the fullness of the gospel that uh, Joseph Smith had, was, was given by God. So I'm rambling a little bit, but we go from the, cre the creation room into what we call the world room or the terrestrial room in which in each room you make promises to God. The first one you promise you're going to, to uh, uh, obey his commandments and sacrifice in your life. You know, you make promises that you'll be chaste in the temple, that you'll keep your marriage vows. Um, you make probably the most important room where you go from the, the um, world room or terrestrial room into what they call the celestial room. These are, remember, it's an ascent ritual. And, and between the, the, uh, 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 the terrestrial room and the celestial room is a veil. You go through, you might've heard of the veil of the temple. If you've read uh, in, uh, in the New Testament, of what it was rent, it was ripped when Christ was resurrected, right? That's a symbol that, we've, that, that the veil is, is, you can penetrate the veil between mortality and immortality. Jesus did it. And uh, so there's a veil between, and, and after you make certain promises that you consecrate your whole life to God and to building up the church and to, building what we call Zion, which is a wonderful idea I'd like to talk about, which goes beyond just the Mormon church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it's a social commitment to build love in the whole world. It, it actually has a political aspect to it that we don't just talk religion. We have to live it in very difficult, conflictual ways. We got to bring love into the world that way. That's the Zion idea. But anyhow, you make those commitments that you're going to give your full life to that. And then you're brought through the veil into the celestial room and you sit there quietly, all Apollonians, not dancing, not singing, just quietly meditating and praying for a while. And then you go and you leave the temple. But that's, I've just taken you through uh, about an hour's experience of, of learning that you have and making these covenants. And there, there are certain signs and tokens that you also use to help you remember those covenants that you're not supposed to share with others. But it's uh, it's not mumbo jumbo. It's pretty simple stuff when you get down to it. And and uh, you can see what temple clothes look like. Just go on the internet. The church has now actually dis disclosed what our temple garments look like, our, our underwear 
uh, has symbols on it to help us remember the commitments we've made in the temple. And uh, we're supposed to wear that all the time after we've gone through this experience. And and you're supposed to go to the temple frequently. Some people go once a year. Some people go a couple of times a month. Uh, When you're older, some people go a couple of times a week. But uh, uh, you might ask why go so often. And now I'm going to come back to the real strangeness of Mormonism. And that is uh, vicarious work for the dead. And this, this, you might have heard that the Latter-day Saints have the largest genealogical library in the world. It's true. Um, And uh, putting, uh, remember the Zion idea I talked about. Joseph Smith said, I want to be a welder. I want to weld together the entire human family and present it all to God at the end when, when Jesus comes back, right? I want to have a Zion people who rises from the earth and meets the Zion people who come down, who have who've died before, but who have who were good people. And so we have this collective Zion in the resurrection. Well, Joseph Smith's whole idea was uh, that humanity had made a deal before the earth was to come down here in, in, in phalanxes, right? Uh, and to make it possible for all the, the spirit children of God to come to earth and have this experience in this veiled life where we're all kind of agnostic, you know, what, what's, what's, what's a good word? Yeah, agnostic and amnesiacs. We're, we, don't, we don't see God around. We don't remember our past but it's a real strong test of what we really desire without, without the heavenly parents looking at us. Do we steal cookies from the jar? You know, what, what, how do you act in an agnostic world? It's really a, an interesting experience that Latter-day Saints felt that these spirits needed to have to, to enjoy and to appreciate what eternity was like. They had to be put in this, a, a condition where it looked like everybody died and became food for worms. You know that they they hadn't had that experience before, and so uh, it's a it's a real learning experience. And you can see again the ascent idea. So if we were all together before, we all agreed with each other as brothers and sisters, we're going to come to Earth and give everybody this chance. Well, we certainly hope that we'd all be together again. And so the idea of vicarious work for the dead is basically taken from the idea that certain things need to happen in this earthly realm. Even Jesus, even the son of God had to be baptized in water, right? To fulfill all righteousness, right? And so we believe that those who haven't had a chance to do that can have a chance vicariously if we do it for them. And so Latter-day Saints do vicarious baptisms for the dead they find the names of the the dead ancestors and beyond more than their i guess they're get back far enough we're all ancestors right but the uh they start with baptisms for the dead then they take and they actually ordain for the dead people to to the priesthood we could talk about that too and then we take them through the and, and ritual endowment for the dead. So if I went in, I don't use my own name every time I go to the temple. I'm 
I use one of my ancestors' names that hasn't gone through yet, or someone else's name who hasn't had an experience yet of going through the temple. Last time I went to the temple, I went for a, a guy named Nathaniel Wade, who was born in 1620 in Denver, not Colorado, but Anglia, East Anglia, England. Okay, I did his work for him, and uh, and and then we also do marriages for the dead. And we do sealings of children to their families for the dead. They call it sealings. We could talk about that. That's another issue. Um, but all that is done vicariously so that every human being, so to speak, in the next world, which we call the spirit world, where we believe we have personalities and exist in what we call spirit bodies, um, can either accept or reject that, that ritual for them and have all the benefits of uh, eternal life that were promised to those who were baptized or, you know, or went through these, these ritual covenants. And so that was a long way of saying we're into genealogy in a big, big way. And if you look at it anthropologically, all religions really all over the world began with the idea of the ancestors being important. The dead were not necessarily gone. They were somehow still around, right? And one thing that the Latter-day Saints have done is they've kept that very much uh, part of their culture. They, they, they believe at times that their dead ancestors are blessing their lives right now. They believe that, um, that they will actually be family grouped in the next life. Um, and that therefore the healing aspect of the salvation it's really important that we forgive each other. It's that is enormously important because who wants to be in a heaven where everybody hates each other, right? You know what I mean? You, you, you don't want to be resurrected into to a worse situation than you're in now. You know, now at least I know he's going to die. But how about living to ever with ever with this jerk, right? That's not going to be so you 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 want you want Zion. The idea of Zion is, you know, you've got to make it happen. Or heaven ain't going to be happy. And so eventually uh, the love of Christ, the love of God, infuses this effort of keeping the family together, right? It was broken from the beginning. Cain killed Abel, right? Just being a family isn't enough to, to make love happen. That's why Christianity, I think, is such a potent idea uh, and real psychologically a profound thing when it says, you know, if on the Sermon on the Mount, if you just love your friends and your family, you get no points for that. Even the jerks do that. They love their friends and family. You got to love your enemies. When Jesus said that, I think most of us still today go, uh, mm -hmm. Hmm. maybe for you, maybe that's what you do. But uh, I think that's really the radical center of Christianity. When he said that, he went really someplace that most of us just have a hard time going. But and that's to me that and his his you know why have thou forsaken me on the cross? I think those are the two elements of Jesus's life that we look at, and if we don't digest them some way, it we haven't gotten into the depth of Christianity, and uh, and it can change people when they when they go there. I'm, I'm rambling again, but I'm just trying to say there's a social aspect to God all the way back 
all the way forward. We do not believe God, he can't stand being lonely, never could. And, uh, and so if you can think of always the Latter-day Saints are doing things as a social group, and they actually want to include the whole world in it eventually, because we were together, together, the whole world was together as a family once. We want to end that way again. Now, I appreciate this. This is, uh, uh, I'm, I'm quite sure there are some listeners and viewers who are thinking, man, this is not the kind of thing I'm used to, to seeing and reading about when it comes to evangelical treatments of the religion, the Latter-day Saints. And that, that was the purpose. That's, this is purposeful here in our conversation. Uh, I, I wanted us to take a lived religion approach, and I really appreciate that. Um, one of the things you mentioned there had to do with the, the importance of connection with a genealogy and, and family and, and going out. There is a, a concept that's been put forward that we need to have holy envy, if we can, of certain aspects of other religious traditions that we don't identify with. And I've always appreciated and had holy envy for that aspect of the Latter-day Saints. And I, I saw something similar in paganism. I participated in Salem, Massachusetts in a, what's called a dumb supper, where you just sit silently and enjoy uh, the meal as you sit and you remember uh, lost loved ones and you, you try to maintain that connection of their continued presence even after death. And I think that's an aspect that's really missing in American Protestant evangelicalism. We have adopted the American individualism to an extreme. And uh, in our death rituals, we have the funeral, but then once that's done, we go through a grieving process and we kind of move on. And I, I really, I just want to say to you as an evangelical, I appreciate and have holy envy for that aspect of what you have in your religious tradition. Um, we might have time for a couple more questions in our time together. Uh, from this angle of lived religion, what are some of the, the big ideas of your sacred story in a mythic dimension? And when I use myth, I, I don't mean it as in the common understanding of something that, that's not true. I mean, in it's mythic, it's, it's big, it's sacred. We, you live your life within it. What are some of those big mythic and sacred ideas within the religion of the Latter-day Saints that, that are most important for you and might very well differ from traditional forms of Christianity? Hmm. That's a wonderful question. I, I mean, I, I think you've touched on some of it already. Yeah. Not, not in, in, you know, bullet point kind of fashion, but every once in a while you would hit on something, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm trying exactly. Yeah. The reason I'm uh, taking a moment, I don't want to be redundant. Right, I, right, right. I've, I've been kind of mythologizing and then giving practical aspects. Yeah. Uh, all the way along. Um but for those evangelicals who tend to think more in terms of, of doctrine, what are some of those big Okay, ideas? okay. All right. Uh, I think you might think of this, for an, talking to an evangelical audience, you might think of this as um, the great myth is perhaps, well, there's three parts of it. One is, you know, Aristotle said that there are two impossibilities of human uh cognition or understanding. Uh, one is that we have always existed. And one is that we were created from nothing. Both are mind boggling 
And yet they, but because we're here and because we ask why <laughs> and what, uh, those questions come up. And so the great mythic question for any religion is where did we come from, right? What was the beginning? And if you go East, most of most people in the Eastern religions are satisfied with eternal regression, always existing. The gods themselves, you know, didn't create anything. Everything is in, in samsara, everything's changing all the time, but, but there was never a first. And then um, most Christians, I think, uh, go along with, I think, with Aquinas, and believe that creatat create ex nihilo creation from nothing right that god has always existed that way but everything else was created out of nothing or out of god himself if you will but um uh i think the, the great lds myth that really filters down through everything uh, is that we are eastern in that sense uh, Joseph Smith said, we've always existed. We're as old. Every soul is as old as God. And if, when you think about that, then you, re you realize, wow, God didn't create us. Even though you'll see language about creation, Latter-day Saints quickly shift into organized. God organized us. You know, there's a social aspect to that and actually a uh, design aspect to that but not a creation aspect of that. We were always there in some form within Latter-day Saint um, uh, community. However, I'll give you a little esoteric piece of information here. There is still a notion of what is the primal intelligence that always existed? We use the word intelligence. Was it actually a form of, of person that had um, will and desire and, and choice? Or was it just just something that could be formed into a person, right? So having said that, I'm very much in the camp uh, of the, the eternal person, okay? That's that's where I sit, but other Latter-day Saints might not be there. But given that, your listeners could just dwell on that. What would it be like for them to believe and worship a God who didn't create them, but that was once like they are, right? There was was intelligence. This, Joseph Smith said, God found himself among intelligences and organized them to do what we're doing now, right? Which implies that there are all sorts of other things that were possibly going on for all those beings. And there might be gods behind gods behind gods, right? An eternal regression of divinities is something that just doesn't sit well with most of my Christian friends. So that's a mythology that takes us to what you might call, again, in Christian parlance, low Christ Christiology, right? Christ um, is there to heal us as well as save us. In other words, he's not saving us from depravity. He's healing us from the sins that we, we have committed as intelligences as humans, the, the free agency, if you will, that Latter-day Saints use, the radical freedom of the intelligent soul cannot be compelled by God. It can't be. Uh, we say God would cease to be God the minute he tried to force anybody. 
to do anything. So I like to say the great LDS insight is what God wants most, he cannot have unless you give it to him. God doesn't want to go out and blitz, make universes and worlds. That's child's play. That's mere technology. What inter- what call- what's, what, what's difficult for God is to get other people to freely love, to freely sacrifice, right? That's what it's all about. And you, you can't compel that. Otherwise, it's, it's not real love. It's not real sacrifice. And so if you catch that nuance there, the great myth of of the gods wanting to love each other without com- compelling any love. Love is only valuable if it is uncompelled. So you have a great influence con- contest going on through eternity where people, where the real action is, does my love influence you? And, and vice versa. And so the mutuality of relationships between God and man, meaning they're of the same kind, they're, they're definitely, one's more superior in terms of accomplishments and capacities right now, <laughs> but uh, that's, the big, that's the big myth. That's, that's the ma- major myth. I think, um, I don't know if you, you've got more time, but it w- if people could just gel with that, uh, they would see why we deserve to be criticized as people who, who don't rely totally completely on the on the saving uh grace of christ because christ is also relying on our decision to be christ's to to sacrifice as he is sacrificed remember the temple ordinance we are we are anointed if you listen to what we our sacrament prayer every week a latter day saint makes a commitment to take upon himself or herself the name of christ and in the ancient world when you took a name on you it was a serious business it was an identity moment right and what does a christ do a christ sacrifices in love for other people that's that's what that's what the messiah does yeah, we talk about him beating up people into the end of the world and getting justice right and everything. But okay, when that's done, what, is he t- what do you do for eternity? You have to love each other and you have to sacrifice. And that continues for Latter-day Saints. Heaven's going to be complicated. There was a war in heaven once. Did you hear that? In heaven. <laughs> How could there be a war in heaven? That would mean radical freedom there, right? In the presence of the most loving being in the universe. Well. Theoretically, radical freedom is so tied to the idea of love. You can't have love without freedom. Otherwise, it's some kind of compulsion. Heaven is going to be a place of complex and interesting things going forward, too, because it's a, eternity is a long time. And uh, so this life, again, is one to teach us to love better, love more. And, and if that... If God gets angry at a Latter-day Saint for seeing God as a close relative and as a great leader and healer, then we will fry in in hell for that. Um, But if he forgives us for that audaciousness, for that hubris, uh, then we're going to be really happy in heaven. 
can't think of I we there's all kinds of things we could have gone into. I was very ambitious in sending you some topics that we were not able to get to, but we try to keep these things to about an hour so they're nice and digestible by folks. And uh, Randy, you've done a marvelous job of describing what it's like, not not in your traditional template that evangelicals are used to, but what it's like to to, to live out the religion of the Latter Day Saints and. Uh, this has been a great conversation that uh, if my listeners and viewers have enjoyed it as nearly as much as I have, I think you've done the audience a great service. You, you're the one who, you've, you pitched me a slow pitch right down the center. So <laughs> it was an easy thing to talk about what I've been spending my life doing as a Latter-day Saint. I just thank you for this opportunity. I will, in the uh, program notes, I'll include uh, not only some information about you and a link to FRD, of course, but uh, a link to your book that you've got out, uh, which I was privileged to. Did you want to say something really quickly about that? Yes, you were one of my co-editors on that book. And I think for evangelicals, it's a dense piece of scholarship, but any evangelicals interested in uh, uh, comparing aspects of the Latter-day Saint life, ritual, um, habits, uh, ecclesiology, of course, theology. I tried to have a section in that book where you spoke partly as a, as a Protestant thinker and I as an LDS thinker and why the Latter-day Saints, at least in the, in the early 20th century, had such a difficulty be con being considered Christian by the, the Protestant group. And, it's, and that goes on today. And I, I might add to my my Protestant, Catholic, and, and non-denominational friends, I am not offended at all when they say I'm not a Christian because after the things I've said today, I don't belong in the classical Christian theological world. And if you want to say I'm not Christian, that's fine. Just try to watch my behavior, and I hope uh, I'll surprise you from time to time acting like a Christian. Well, again, there'll be a link to the book in the program notes. I'll throw in a couple of links to the official website of the church so folks can track down some further documentation if they want to learn more. And uh, hopefully this conversation has been helpful for folks who want to understand a little bit more about their Latter-day Saint friends and neighbors and family members. And they too can begin uh, an informed conversation that involves uh, not only speaking, but listening and trying to understand as well. My, uh, my longtime deep friend, Randy, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm, I want to add one very quick postscript. Yes. The Latter-day Saints uh, need uh, some holy envy of their, of their own. And what I've found in you, John, is your willingness to outreach and really learn. Too many Latter-day Saints still think it's the only true church, and therefore there's nothing to learn. And uh, so forgive your Latter-day Saint friends out there who um, are too too oriented to what they already think they know and they're not outreaching enough. I, I hope that the Latter-day Saints really are into mutuality in the next century where, where they, they really engage. If they're going to build Zion, they'd better get the good stuff from the everybody, right? <laughs> not just from their own team. Well, I appreciate it. There's plenty of hubris on the side of uh, evangelicals and others. So it's, it's not just a Latter-day Saint challenge, but I appreciate that. So my thanks to Randy and for the viewers and listeners. Again, I'm John Moorhead hosting Multi-Faith Matters. Please help us out and subscribe on the YouTube page. 
follow us, share it with others, like it. Uh, it helps our audience grow. So thanks to everybody for watching and listening.